Good morning. I stand before you all understanding that um, I must preach because uh, God has called me to preach and because Alex has called me to preach today too. (laughs) Preaching um, Dr. Gardner C. Taylor known as the Dean of African American Preacher, calls preaching the sweet torture of Sunday morning. I am just a beggar, just like the rest of you, and I'm trying to show you guys where I get my bread. I thank Alex for this opportunity to the elders and deacons of this church. Uh, We will be praying for Alex. As I said earlier, he is traveling um, to baptize a family member, I believe a young cousin of his. And so with that, um, I stand before you. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 7. I will do my best to deal with the entire chapter. Um, I I looked at my clock. I think I have about an hour. I can do about an hour without nobody. (laughs) Just to get you guys up to date real quick of Joshua, where we're at right now. The, one of the greatest leaders of Israel's time and history is now dead, Moses. And God tells Joshua in chapter 1, my servant Moses is dead. It's time for you to lead this people. He tells them, be strong, be courageous. I will be with you as long as you obey my commandments. Joshua is probably one of the most underrated characters in the Bible. Like we all want to grow up to be like Moses or David. Joshua is a bad dude. He's he's a pretty cool dude. And and he is probably one of the greatest prophets, leaders of all time for Israel. And so we get to chapter 2 of Joshua where uh, he sends spies into the land of Jericho and they're they're spotted. And this prostitute named Rahab, why did they go in her house? I don't know, but they did. And she hides them. And because she hides them, they make a covenant that we will not destroy you or your family. Just get get them all in this house and tie a red string or or a rag from the uh, window and when we come to destroy the city, we will not destroy you and your family. And we see as they, as they prepare to, to take over the city, they must first, as a whole nation, cross over Jordan. And as God did with Moses at the Red Sea, he parts Jordan, right? And they don't walk on a muddy ground. He parts Jordan, and they walk as a thousands and thousands of people to tribe on dry land across Jordan. Just as Moses had to consecrate the people and circumcise the people, we are now dealing with new people here because all of the old people in Israel died in the wilderness. So they had to be consecrated and circumcised all over again. Joshua is heading all of this because only two people lived from the wilderness experience, Joshua and Caleb. Uh, they also celebrate for the first time the uh, Passover supper. And so we continue to go on through Joshua, and they get to Jericho where 
They caused the walls of Jericho. Now, in this day and time, the walls is what keeps the city, the strongest part of the city. If, you can't, if we have a strong wall, no one can get inside of us. No one can defeat us. And so this small tribe, possibly, of Israel tears down the wall just by obeying God's word and walking around it, as he says. And if you guys do not notice this, Rahab's house, the Bible says, is built inside the wall. But they promised we will not destroy you and your family. Yet the Bible says the walls fell down and not a stone was left on top of the other. Now, I don't, we, I'm not going to try to explain what happened. I wasn't there. But we have to believe that the same God that's able to cause the Red Sea and the Jordan to part, the same God that's able to do miracle after miracle, can protect this family and their house even when the walls are falling down. And so now we get to the end of chapter 6, and it says this. The Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was throughout the land. The very last verse of chapter 6. Things are going great. And so now we get to Joshua chapter 7. And I want to look at, um, just for the reading, verses 10 through 15, but I will deal with the entire chapter. Here's the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because I have because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Let me comfort you. I'm not going to say anything about you guys deserving to get burnt with fire and stone, all right? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Be with us now. Remind us that this is your word. Send your angels to give us understanding, for only understanding comes from you. Calm our spirits. Keep us concentrated and focused as we see what you have to say to us on this day. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Hugo is a high school, and their basketball team is trying to make it to the state championship game. Two games away. And in this game that they have where they're only two games away, all they have to do is win. They're up by one point with 2.9 seconds left on the clock. It gets better. They have the ball. 
All they got to do is run the clock out, and they win the game. They're that much closer to the state championship. Referee blows his whistle, passes the ball to the player, and he looks for his teammate, finds somebody wide open. He passes it to him. He catches it, and he lays it up at the buzzer. This will cause his team to win, not by one point, right? They have the ball, two, three points now, except for one problem. He scores in the wrong basket. <laughs> this is real. This really happened. His team now loses by one point. Why did he take that last shot? Was it greed? Did he need two more points on his statistics to make him look that much better? Could it have been possibly confusion? Did he think that they were down by one point and, and that he needed to throw up this desperate shot in the wrong goal? Regardless of the reason, he made a mistake. And his mistake caused his team an untimely exit out of the state championship game, out of the playoffs. This did not just affect him. It affected his teammates, the fans, and the entire school. Now, we have all grown up hearing this phrase, right? One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch, or it can ruin the entire batch, right? And, and when I was younger, I thought this was the most illogical, unfair, dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? Because in school, what happens? One kid, one kid can cause an entire classroom to miss recess or be late for lunch. And, and some of you guys aren't looking at me right now because it was probably you. <laughs> one person having that much power, one person causing that much impact, is that fair? Not only is that a common phrase, one apple spoils the whole bunch, but it's part of our Christian belief. Consider that Adam's decision caused not only sin and death to enter upon him, but this affected the entire human race. Any person that has ever breathed on this earth has felt the consequences of Adam biting the forbidden fruit. Romans support this statement by saying in chapter 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man. Go on to verse 18. One trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Paul understands this. And he says it again in his first letter to the Corinthians church in uh, chapter 5, verse 6. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, he says this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I'm talking about one man's sin. One man's sin affecting an entire nation, an entire people. And there may be people here that disagree with that. Say, love doesn't make sense. That's not fair. Let me ask you this. In the football game, if, if someone gets a false start, do they just make that person go back by himself? <laughs> no. The entire team has to go back five yards. I played basketball, and I even helped keep the scorebook. And when I commit a foul, which I committed a lot of fouls, what happens is I get documented a foul by my name. The very next thing they do is go to the team fouls and they add a foul to the team. What I'm saying is 
when one person makes a mistake, one player commits a foul, the entire team gets penalized. Here in Joshua, we have gotten to the end of the first battle in Israel's quest. They're trying to take over the promised land. And after great miracles being performed, like what? We have walking over a dry Jordan. The walls of Jericho falling down. And yet Rahab and her household survive. They have seen miracle after miracle. They have successfully destroyed all of Jericho as God commanded. And the end of chapter 6 says this. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Good things are happening. Would you agree? And as we get to chapter 7, the chapter we will look at today, it opens with this word, but. Now, you must understand this, but can be a good thing. Usually, but is a good thing if the thing before it is bad. Right, it's, it's a very simple, I'm not, I'm not, you know, this isn't grad school education here. If the thing before but is bad, then the thing after it is good. Here's some examples. God was going to destroy all of the earth, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. David was going to be overlooked as the king because man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. But it can be a good thing. In the African-American uh, culture tradition, uh, people, someone sometimes can tell you about a hard trial they're facing in life. They can tell you the testimony about how fear overwhelmed them, pain overtook them, and good fortunes overlooked them. And they can tell you how they came to the point where they couldn't take anymore, they couldn't bear it, they was about to give up, and I don't know where they would say, but God. And that's the end of the story right there. You don't have, they, don't, they don't tell you what else happened. All they say is, but God, and walk off. You're confused. You don't know. What did he do? But God. But it can be a good thing. And so common sense tells us that we can assume that if but is a good thing, if the thing before it is bad, that means that if good things are before but, bad things are about to happen. And the chapter 7 starts off after a great chapter 6 of them conquering Jericho. God's with them. It starts off with but. Verse 1 kind of spoils it for us. It tells us that the people of Israel sinned by breaking faith, acting unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. And as you read it, you're thinking, a few, if not a whole bunch of people from Israel has made a mistake. But then you keep on reading and you see that it says this, for Achan took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, if you, if you have your Bible open, in chapter 6, verse 18, Joshua clearly warns them this, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any away of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Joshua warns them that if anyone takes from the devoted things, then not just that person, but the entire camp of Israel will be punished. 
And that's exactly what happens. The very thing Joshua warns Israel in chapter 6 has now become true. And the God that was with Joshua and Israel in chapter 6, verse 27, is no longer with them. What worse can happen? What worse can happen than God telling you, I'm not going to be with you anymore? I know they didn't have the songs, but I can hear them echoing Psalm 51 that Chris read to us earlier. Whatever you do, don't cast me from your presence. The reality of sin is that God hates it, no matter who does it. It threatens your fellowship with Yahweh, and it separates you, causing him to punish you. See, God, he does not give his covenant people a pass from sin. And so now we see the same term, devoted for destruction, that was used for the wicked and ungodly people is now being used for Israel because God is no respecter of a person and he shows no partiality. The Bible says, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's the reason why Israel is now offered up for destruction, just like the Canaanites. Sin is sin no matter who's doing it. No matter who's doing it. And if a Gentile prostitute like Rahab shows her faith in God, then she will be counted as righteousness. Just as if a covenant man displays unfaithfulness to God, he will be counted guilty. Sin, it leaves your heart melted, as we see in verse 5 here. This is the same word used to describe the wicked kings in chapter 5, verse 1. Sin plagues not just you. Listen, listen to the words. I'm going to go through this. Listen to the words that God uses. He says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed. They have taken. They have stolen and lied. They have become devoted for destruction. And because of Achan's sin, about 36 soldiers dies at the hand of Ai. This is a big deal. Don't think that this is a small thing. This is a big deal. Why? Ai was only supposed to be about 3,000 soldiers. This is going to be the smallest land they had to conquer. After defeating the giant of Jericho, they go to Ai and they lose the battle. And Joshua realizes something's wrong. The same God that helps them defeat their enemies, we must, it must be something dealing with him for us to lose the battle. And so what he does is he follows the example of Moses, just as he did when he uh, parted and crossed over a large body of water and walked on dry land, just as he consecrated a, a large body of people and circumcised them, just as he celebrated the Passover, just as he did so many things, just like Moses, he now intercedes on behalf of Israel and does it in a reverent way. Now, if you read it, it can be argumentative, but he does it out of reverence. He tears his clothes. He falls down before the ark. They, they wear dirt on their head until the evening. He is honest, and he addresses concerns, concerns of being destroyed, concerns of losing his leadership position, and he does what we see Moses do in Exodus 32 and Numbers 14. He puts Yahweh's reputation on the line. He says this in verse 9, what will you do for your great name? If we are destroyed, then the Canaanites and all the inhabitants we're here that you cannot bring your people into the land that you promised. 
that this is what's echoed in 1 Samuel 22, uh, 12, 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his namesake. It is the sentiments exclaimed throughout the Psalms. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Psalms 23. Oh Lord, pardon my guilt. For your namesake, Psalms 25, you lead me and guide me for your namesake, Psalm 31. Yet he saved them for his namesake, Psalms 106. It is stated throughout the prophets. For my namesake, I have decided to defer my anger, Isaiah 48. Do not spurn us for your namesake, Jeremiah 14. I acted for the sake of my name, Ezekiel 20. It is now as it is then that when we pray, we ought to say, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Not because I deserve it, but simply for your name's sake. He puts Yahweh's reputation on the line. God's wrath and his anger is against the people right now. And because of their sin and transgression against his covenant, his commandment, he says they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more. Sin, it, it, it may not affect our relationship with God, but it will affect our fellowship with him. Saul, when he sinned, he didn't stop becoming king. David, when he sinned, he didn't stop. He didn't lose the anointing. He was still God's anointing one, his chosen one. It puts the fellowship on the line. That's why David said, God, do not cast me from your presence. He didn't say, God, do not remove me from my king position. He's not worried about that. He's the anointed one. And if anyone touches the anointed one, they will be in trouble. So he's not worried about that. He's worried about the fellowship with God. Sin destroys our fellowship with God. Yes, we are still God's children, but we don't have the fellowship there. And because of sin, it puts us at risk of standing before God and him saying, I don't know you. Depart from me. God is going to leave Israel and devote them for destruction. Unless they destroy the devoted things from among them. Now, God gives them very specific instructions on how to deal with this. Joshua is to consecrate the people, signifying that the Lord is going to do great things in the morning. And they're supposed to wake up and they're going to call them tribe by tribe until God reveals who the culprit is. And so what they're going to do is they're going to call every tribe. And God's going to say, no, 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 it's Judah. So Judah's going to come forward as a tribe. He's going to call every clan. Not this clan, not this clan, not this clan. Yes, yeah, this clan. And then they're going to choose household. And then out of that household, they're going to choose people. Can you not see God's patience on display? Do anybody see that here? God has given Achan. First of all, all night to contemplate his sin and come to repentance. He then calls for this very long process to take place before he's found. God could have told Joshua right then and there who did it. God could have told Joshua that night to kill Achan and his family and destroy it and I will be with you. That's not what he does. He is very gracious and he is very patient in his dealing with Achan. Understand this. His patience reflects his power. Think about it. Achan has heard about the failed attempt to conquer Ai, right? He is probably hearing mothers crying over the fact that they have lost 
one of their sons out of 36. He hears siblings that are crying over the death of a brother. He hears newly widowers weeping over the loss of their husband. And this does not grieve Achan to repentance. He hears the screams of pain from wounded soldiers who are still surprised to, to lose to such a weak opponent. And he is not led to repentance. He hears how Joshua and the elders were crying out before the Lord to answer their prayer all day. And this does not lead him to repentance. He sees his wife walk by. He sees his children playing in the yard. And he understands he has put their lives in danger. And this still does not lead him to repentance. He gets instructions. We must consecrate ourselves. Because God's going to do great things for us tomorrow. And he consecrates himself. But he's going through the motions. He, he's not really giving up his all to God. He, he's consecrating himself, but there's no repentance. He understands that he knows he's holding on to something. And he's hiding something. Can we not see ourselves in this story here? No real consecrating is going on. There is something that he's holding on to. Something that he has buried deep that he thinks no one will ever find out about. But remember, our God is omniscient. He sits high and he looks low. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And even though Achan feels safe with his secret, he is not because he is holding on to unrepentant sin. And the reality of sin is God hates it. This has got to be the longest night of his life. And yet, no repentance. But God continues to show his patience. How? The next morning, he calls tribe by tribe. This is a large, this is a large nation. He's called tribe by tribe. And he says, it's Judah. The tribe that Achan is part of, he doesn't repent. He did cause out of that tribe, clan by clan by clan, and he gets to the Zerahites, and he chooses them. The same clan that Achan is part of, he is not led to repentance. He did calls them household by household, and he says it's Zabdi's household. This is Achan's grandfather. He is still not led to repentance. He is then out of the household calling member my member. And you can see as Achan get close to the line, God saying, innocent, innocent, and he still doesn't say anything. And if you look at it, when he finally get called out, he doesn't fall to the ground and say, I'm sorry. He doesn't cry and say, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I did this. No, Joshua has to pry it out of him. He has to pry the confession out of him. And Achan confesses, but he doesn't repent. Confessing is not repenting. Judas confessed, I betrayed an innocent man. Achan even confesses here, I took some of the things. There's no confession. There's confession, but there's no repentance. That's, that's just going through the motion. That's not repentance. David says, he don't want my confession. He don't want my sacrifice. I can give sheep and goats all day saying I've sinned. He said, God doesn't want that. He said, he wants my heart broken and contrite. That's confession and repentance. So Achan doesn't repent, but Israel does. And they do so by showing their trust and faith in God, by obeying what he said in verse 15. This is what he says. He tells them, he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has. Because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. After Israel repents, they are given permission 
and strategy from God to finally conquer AI. No problem. God takes care of it for them. Their repentance here sets the stage for the rest of the book as the whole nation is reminded of the seriousness of sin and the power of God's wrath. This is the only battle that they lost. AI is the only battle they lost throughout the whole book of Joshua. They conquered the entire land of Canaan, the promised land. And this prepares a way for another leader. A leader whose name means the exact same thing as Joshua. Yahweh is salvation. Yeshua, Jesus. This, this book right here, this chapter, takes us to the part where our leader is now understood to come from the tribe of Judah. This leader is going to come to all of us just as Joshua came to Achan and tell us, give praise to the Lord, confess our sins. He's going to do just like Joshua. He's going to tell us to consecrate ourselves and repent, not just for a new day, but for a new life. God did not have to wait until the next day to kill Achan. Achan should have died that night. If I'm honest with you, you, I should have died last night. The wages of sin is death. It may not go well with you, but the truth is you should have died last night just like Achan. But there's only one reason why we didn't die last night, and that's because Christ died one night. I know I'm right about it. Achan should have died last night, but Christ died one night for us. And the same name that some call Yeshua, I call Jesus. He's the reason why we didn't die last night. The reason we didn't die last night was because Christ allowed them to stretch him wide on the cross. They nailed his hands and they nailed his feet. And they raised him high upon the cross. And he died for all of us. He died for dope dealers. He died for prostitutes like Rahab. He died for everyone. Because if it was not for Christ, we would have been in that same situation. He died for us all. Here's the problem with the world. We all are under a curse. But we have a cure for that curse. And it is only because of the cross that we have that cure. The cure is repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. There's a curse, but there's a cure for the curse, and it can only be found at the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. Now, the story doesn't, doesn't end there with Jesus. Because if he's, if he's dead, to, frankly, he's not God, Right? God is not dead. God can't die. And so he proves he is God by showing that AI may be able to conquer Israel, but death cannot conquer me. And he raises from the grave with all power in heaven and earth. And this power gives us the faith to believe in him, gives us the um, privilege to come to him and repent. I came to Jesus just as I was. I was weary, wounded, and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. Soli Deo Glory.